Well, good morning again. <clears throat> Welcome to Vine Community Church. We are honored and privileged to have you with us. If you are here for the first time, I want to reiterate that we are, are really, really glad that you're here. So, Welcome. Um, our hope for you is that two things. One, people are nice to you, and two, you have an encounter with the risen Christ. Those are our deepest desires, and so hopefully this morning that is exactly what happens. But we're glad you're here. We're glad you're giving us part of your Sunday morning. We think you're coming at a pretty fun time. We've begun a new adventure, and um, I'm not going to go too deep into this because we've did it the past two weeks. I gave a lot of intro and a lot of reasons uh, that this is going to be a challenge and all those kind of things. So if you're interested, you can go back and take a look, or <clears throat> you can even subscribe to our podcast there on, on uh, the old interwebs and, and do that. But I'm going to give you just a tiny little sliver um, of all that, just in case you are here. But we've started this new journey to the book of Romans, and we love preaching and teaching through text around here. It's our heartbeat for you to fall in love with the Word of God. Like, that's the deepest desire that I have as a preacher is that you would fall in love with God's Word. Not that I would entertain you or that you would want to come back or any of those things, right? I want you to have a love affair with God's Word. I believe that's the call of any real preacher is to introduce you to God's Word and to continue to push and challenge you to get involved in it. Do not take what I believe as uh, authority or truth, but simply push you to ask the, ask the questions, what does God's word say? Like, we want you to know it that well. So we love to preach and teach through it so that you can experience it and wrestle with it and do all the things that it takes to move from one verse to another, from one word to another, from one line to another, which leads us to a lot of difficult places sometimes. Sometimes preaching through texts like that is challenging. And I gave a lot of reasons for that the past couple of weeks that it's going to be challenging to preach the book of Romans Simply because Romans wasn't really meant to be preached in two verses every Sunday. It was meant to be experienced as a whole letter. And I kind of had mentioned that it's really hard to understand the end of chapter 1 without the full knowledge of chapter 3. Chapter 6 is impossible to really get without chapter 9. And chapter 9 sheds light on chapter 1. And so we're not going to be in chapter 9 until, well, 2027. And so... Um, we got a lot of kind of uh, jumping around to do, but it's going to be really great because this book is, it's something magnificent because it's different than all of Paul's other letters, right? All of Paul's other letters were written to, to groups of people that he knew pretty well, that he spent time with. Ephesians, for example, we just spent a year in Ephesians and Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus, but he'd already spent three years with them. He had taught with them every single day for three years. He knew them intimately. They knew him. There was a lot of assumptions that were made in his letter. It was like this sort of pouring out of a heart. Well, Paul doesn't know the Romans at all. He's never met them. He's never actually been there. In fact, we know that Paul's going to try and get there. He's actually going to talk about it today. He wants to visit them, but he never has. And so Romans is sort of this deep, systematic unpacking of the gospel, preparing the church in Rome for his arrival. It's almost like Paul goes, I don't know what you fully know, but I'm going to make sure to lay it all out so that when I arrive, you have this sort of background and you and I have connected and you know theologically kind of where our starting place is. And so Romans is this incredible, incredible systematic theology of the gospel from start to finish. And it's, it's really, really powerful. And some levels, it really is the gospel of God fully laid out and the power of God on full display. Like it's God's beautiful redemptive plan for humanity. It's, it's the reality of creation tied into the, the nature of humanity's sin and the wrath that we're due from God, but God's incredible extravagant love poured out to the person of Jesus Christ and how the believer walks all of that out throughout the course of their life. 
It's really powerful. Um, but it's a challenge to preach. Um, and that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. We're just going to wrestle with it. And on top of that, it includes some of the most difficult theology in all of Scripture. It just does. It has difficult texts in there, and Paul does a not a great job of answering all of his questions. He oftentimes leaves us with things like, well, that's just the mystery of God. Well, that's great and all, but it's really hard to preach, right? Because sometimes we'll walk out of here on a Sunday going, whoa, okay, well, I didn't tie that up in three points in a poem. Uh, okay, so, you know, we're going we're gonna to deal with some answered, unanswered questions. And that's good, I think, because it'll push us deeper into God's Word, and that is where we're going to find depth and richness, and we're going to grow and, and, and mature in our faith. And so I'm excited about it, um, but it is a challenge. But that being said, it's a grand adventure. I'm really excited. It does build on each other week by week, so my hope is that you keep coming because each week will feed into the next. These are not great standalone sermons. Uh, they actually build off each other. For example, we are in this incredible introduction that Paul writes. A lot of Paul's letters, he has this introduction of three or four verses saying, I'm the Apostle Paul, this is where I'm from. So-and-so sends their greeting, tell your mom I said hi, and then he just dives into his letter, right? Romans is 17 verses of this introduction that lays out Paul's entire existence, essentially, and what he does. And so we're into week three of that. We're not even going to wrap it up until next week as we kind of embark on this journey. So they kind of see it building on each other. Well, the first week, what we looked at was we looked at Paul kind of stating his, who he was, his authority, and his purpose for the Romans. So basically saying, this is who I am, in case you don't know. And they had probably heard about Paul, and rumors had been going around, and people had made reports, but they had never met him, remember? So he lays this introduction of who he is and the authority he has and his purpose for writing him a letter. He talks about the gospel itself, right? What I'm getting ready to explore for you in this letter, I want to tell you a little bit about, and I want to tell you about the implications of that gospel. He does all that in the first seven verses. And then last week, he kind of continues by opening up his heart a little bit. He talks about how thankful he is that Christ has redeemed him and how thankful he was that he's heard about the faith of the Roman believers and it's being spread all over the world. Like the entire world was hearing about how faithful the Romans had been and their, their trust and belief in Christ because it was such a difficult place to be a believer, right, in Rome. Um, believers were literally being put to death and killed just for saying they believe in Christ and there were very few of them. And so it was a really difficult place to be a believer, yet their faith had been strong and had been reported all over the world. And so Paul says, I'm so thankful that your faith is impacting the world. I've heard about it everywhere I go. And he talks about his desire to come to them, to see them. But he talks about his trust in the providence of God, meaning I'm trying to get there, but I believe that God is at work. And we're going to see today that God doesn't let him go yet, but he trusts that God is always moving and always at work. And he basically proclaims that to, to the believers. He says, God is always at work, and I trust that he's going to bring me to him when he op- bring me to you when those doors are open. Well, this morning he's going to continue that introduction, and basically what he's going to do is he's going to reveal a little bit more of his reasons for wanting to go to Rome. He's going to tell the church there why he wants to come and visit them. And in doing so, he's going to reveal his heart for the church and the passion and joyful obedience he has for his own calling. And I think it's going to ask and kind of open up a couple of questions for, uh, for you and for me as we explore that. So we're going to be in the book of Romans, chapter 1, 11 through 15 today. We're going to make up through all of them, uh, all, all those verses today, because I want to get to 16 next week. So if you got your Bible, and you know, last week I know we talked about this a little bit, but there's a Bible next to you. There's an audible buzz of excitement over the new Bibles in the, uh, uh, the chairs. We don't get excited about a lot around here. But uh, we got some new ones. Uh, they're large print, um, and, uh, and there you can grab one of those and use it. I tell you this, every, we are going to be in the Word of God every single week. So if you have a Bible, just bring it, right? Bring it. Write in it. 
use it, bring it every week. There's never going to be a Sunday when we're not. If there is and we don't, just get up and leave, right? Say, man, they're not going to be in the Bible today. We're, we're going away. We'll find a new church. You're fine with me. It's great. Um, but we will be in it every week. So if not, use that one. If you don't own one, keep that one, all right? It's yours to keep. Um, we will take it out of Brandon's salary. So you're welcome to. Then he won't get, that'd be the whole year's worth of money for Brandon. So that's one, one whole bottle. Um, anyway, we want you to keep it and hang on to it. But we're going to be in the book of Romans chapter 1, 11 through 15. So let's pray a moment, and then we're just going to dive straight into this text. Lord, what a privilege, <clears throat> a joy it is to gather as a community and open your word together. Lord, men like Paul that have given their lives for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the church, for the cause, for the calling, Lord. We have so much to learn um, as believers, Lord. We are are so easily swayed and moved by our own self, our own desires, by the pressure of culture and the world around us, and um, it's, it's difficult. But Lord, let us learn from uh, the church in Rome. Let us learn from Paul. Lord, let us grow in our faith and become mature believers that truly trust you. Lord, as a church, strengthen us as we spend time in your word. Encourage us, Lord, that we are saved, that we are redeemed, and that we are yours to be used. Lord, let us understand that you have a higher calling for our lives than just simply to exist, that you want to use us to further the kingdom of God, to encourage people and to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Take a moment in your own heart this morning, just as you sit here before we kind of get into the word, and just ask the Lord to teach you something simple, Lord, just teach my heart doesn't have to be earth-shattering. Just ask the Lord to prepare you, to teach you, to open you. Take a moment and pray for someone beside you, around you, in front of you, behind you. We do this each week. We want to be in the habit of praying for other people. So I say each Sunday, everything that unfolds here on Sunday morning is not about you. Care about the spiritual growth of the people around you. Pray for your husband or your wife or a friend. Or if you're here on your own and your first time, just pray for someone that's, that's next to you. You don't even know their name. It's okay. Just try it. Ask God to teach their hearts. Lord, we turn our morning over to you. We ask you to teach us through your word. We ask these things in Jesus' holy and risen and resurrected name. Amen. All right, so we're week three into this introduction, and the introduction is going to take us all the way down into verse 17, and we are picking up in verse 11. So remember where we've been. Paul's laid out his purpose and who he is and the foundation for the gospel, implications of the gospel. He's told the Romans essentially that he wants to be with them, that he wants to see them. He's told them and taken an oath saying he is, he is praying for them continually, and this morning is going to reveal a little bit of the reasons why and his heart and love for the church, <clears throat> and his joy and obedience for this calling. Let's take a look at these verses together. So this is what it says in verse 11. <clears throat> I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I planned many times to come to you, but I have been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you just as I have had among the other Gentiles. I am obligated both to Greeks and the non-Greeks, both to the wise and to the foolish. 
That is why I'm eager to preach the gospel also to you who are at Rome. So as Paul continues on this introduction, he actually reveals his reason or reasons. There's a couple of them, but one overarching reason for why he actually wants to go to Rome. So he's been telling him he loves them. He's telling him he's thankful for their faith. He's been telling him that he's been trying to get there. He's been praying for them continually. But in verse 11, he begins to open his heart a little bit to tell them why he wants to go. And the first thing that we see is he basically says that he wants to serve the church. Paul truly wants to serve the church. In verse 11, he reveals a little bit of his motives. I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. So Paul says, look, I want to come and visit you. I want to see you because I have a purpose. And that purpose is I want to impart or give to you or lay upon you a spiritual gift so that you will be made strong. So Paul does want to see them because he loves them and he cares about the church and he's called to go and share the gospel with Gentiles. Paul does want to visit with them because their faith has been made known around the world, but he has actually a reason. And that reason, he wants to show up in Rome and he wants to give them a spiritual gift that will make them strong. Now, he doesn't tell us a lot about that spiritual gift. In fact, he doesn't even say anything else about it. We have no idea what it is. Was it an extraordinary gift? Was it an ordinary gift? Was it something that we don't know about? We don't have any idea because the gift is not actually Paul's point. What Paul's point is is that he wants to impart something that will make them strong. And as we'll see in verse 12, will help them grow in their faith. So Paul's deep desire to get to Rome was to see the Roman believers become strong and grow in their faith. See, Paul wants to serve the church. He doesn't have his desire to go to Rome to be self-seeking, to like add another church to his list of like churches, to add another satellite community so that the church of Paul has multiple campuses all over the known world, right? His goal is not to go there so that he can add something to himself or a desire that he might be able to go and get something from them. So like if I go to Rome, then I'll be able to, to learn a little bit more Latin and I'll have a better kind of language understanding and you have some things to give me, and so I want to visit you guys so that I can be. It's none of that. Paul's desire here is simply to just serve the church. He wants to give them something. He wants to bless them. He wants to minister to them. And it's important here, right, because there's some underlying principle here that's really powerful about Paul's motivation. And I think it lays a convicting edge on the top of our culture when it comes to church culture in the 21st century here in Western kind of Christianity. All throughout Scripture, we see Paul simply just wanting to serve. Paul does not want to be made famous. Paul does not want to be known as any kind of celebrity. In fact, there's a couple of places that Paul goes and people identify him as some kind of maybe the Messiah. Paul tears his clothes and runs around naked, saying essentially like, that's blasphemy. Don't ever compare me with that. Don't put me on that pedestal. In fact, Paul refers to himself as a chief of all sinners. Paul's simple desire was to serve the church. He just wanted them to give, give him a gift so that they could be strong and have strong faith. Which got me thinking a lot, like, <clears throat> what do we think about when we, as a culture, when we think about church? Most of us have been cultured to think the church exists to serve me. Like, that's really the way that most of us approach church. In fact, most of you came to this community because you were disenchanted with another community, and you were looking to see what we had to offer you. I mean, if we're just being completely and totally honest, that's most likely what's happened. You go to a church, you look around, right? Looks like a nice group of people. 
What kind of programs do they have? What do they have for singles, for marrieds? What's their youth ministry like? Where's the rock climbing wall? Do they have a cafe? They do paninis on every other Sunday. Like, what do they have to offer me? How's the preaching? The guy good? Does he wear costumes? On Christmas, do they bring out live animals? Like, what do you have to offer me and my family? And I hear this all the time. We went so-and-so, but they didn't have anything for fourth-grade girls. So we didn't stay. Okay. Or we went, and they didn't offer anything for 75-plus older people that like to eat at Denny's. They don't have anything for us there. Or the parking situation was this. Or I'm a single, right? I'm 19. I want to be married. and I'm looking for a bunch of singles and you didn't have anything to offer me. So just it wasn't the right place. Like this is the mentality that we consumer shop church with. We walk in like it's a mall on some level. We survey the land. We look around. We see what kind of coffee they have and what kind of things they may give or what they may offer. Now again, it's a little bit tongue in cheek, but it's pretty true. How many churches did you try before you ended up here? If you've left three churches in the past year, the problem is probably not the church, right? Like, it's our attitude towards the community. We approach church with this mentality. What do you have to offer me? What do you have to offer my family? And if you have the right formula, right, you you preach this, you sing this way, you have this program, then we will consider being a part of here. We'll ease ourselves in. And we'll pick from the kind of garden until it doesn't suit us anymore. And then we'll stomp around and kick our feet and be frustrated and gossip a little bit. And then we'll just leave. Now, again, it's not all, but it is a disease. It's a disease that's infected our 21st century church. Paul lays a foundation of what it means to just truly go and just give. Paul just wants to go to the Romans and impart a gift so that they can be strengthened and encouraged in their faith. What if your goal on Sunday was to walk into a place and say, Lord, how do you want to use me? Like, how can my family and I, or just myself, be used by you to encourage or empower or strengthen or love people? Like, we say it every single Sunday. Everything that unfolds on a Sunday morning is just not about you. What if we believe that? What if you, when you were looking for a church or you were experiencing kind of your family moving around, the first thing you ask is, how can my family and I pour into this community? And sometimes it's not a fit, and that is okay. I'm not condemning that. But what I am saying is that our mentality is broken when we walk in the doors. First thing we typically ask is, what do you have for me? Instead of what can I give? How can we serve? How can we lay our lives down to encourage and strengthen this community? Like, What gifts can we give? And not in that sort of way that says, oh, of course, I'm super spiritual and holy and I will give all these people my blessings. That's not what's happening. But simply just saying, like, how can I be used here to encourage and love people? Like, what did you ask this morning? I mean, how many people did you walk in and, and, and take their hand and tell them you're great to see them or hug them? Or did you see someone you didn't know? Maybe they're new. You told them to welcome. You asked them to sit with you. Like, how are you here for other people? Paul's heart was to love and serve the church. It was. He wants to see them strengthened. I've got a gift that I want to impart on you so that you may be strengthened. The question that I have for us and for myself is, is, what if we existed in that same mentality? He says, I'm just here to serve. Like, I'm just here to be served. Not what you can give me, not what you have to offer, not to complain, just to say, God, use me. Look, this place, none of them, if you've been to any church, none of them are perfect. You are going to find flaws in every single one of them. 
Ours may be more visible than others. Others may be more visible than ours. They're all there. If you look hard enough, just broken people doing things, you're going to find problems. So the question you have to ask yourself is, Lord, how do you want to use me? Or how can I serve the church and not the church serve me? But there's a really unique principle here that Paul ties into, right? So let's keep that in mind because the second part is going to see how God blesses us and moves in us when we begin to selflessly serve, right? So this is the second thing Paul realizes, or Paul basically says. He knows that death to self actually brings life. Look at verse 12. Verse 12, he says, Look, I long to see you, that I may impart some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. So Paul says something remarkable. He says, I'm coming to serve you, and I long to serve you, and that's it. So that I might give you this gift so that you may be strong, impart that so that you and I both may be mutually encouraged. So Paul kind of hits on this thing, which is if, if I come to a place where I'm willing to die to myself, my own desires, the things I could get out of it, just desire to come and serve, just lay down my life, right? That there is a part that will lead to me growing in my faith also. And this is the concept that's at play, and that's a major concept in the Christian life. In fact, the entire gospel is built around this idea of death to self. That the most important part of Christian life is that I am called to die to me. That is the gospel in a nutshell, that Jesus Christ calls us to die to ourselves and be made fully alive in him. He actually says it in John chapter 12, actually a couple of places, but in John 12 he says it really plainly. He's actually getting ready to predicting his own death. He's preparing the disciples for the fact that he's going to the cross and he's going to be taken from them. So he's speaking very plainly to them. And this is what he says. He says, listen, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. In other words, I'm getting ready to be crucified and resurrected. I tell you the truth, that unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. The man who loves his life in this world will lose it while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. The basic principle at play here is simply this, that we are called to die to ourselves, to lay down our lives and to fully surrender to the lordship of Jesus Christ, and then by doing so, we are made fully alive. When we die to ourselves, we are made fully alive in Christ. It is the principle of the gospel. And it's one that Paul is expounding on really powerfully here. He's essentially saying that when I go to serve the church and I lay down my life, what ends up happening is life ends up being given to me. We have this incredible thing that's taken place in our lives where we are sinful and fully dead. Not sick, right? Not kind of dying, but fully dead in our sin. And God, through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, has made us fully alive. And it's only by dying to our old self that we are made alive in Christ, which means we have to put to death all of our wants, all of our desires, all the things that would self-serve us and die to who I am to be made alive in Christ. And in doing so, Paul says that there is this growth that takes place. He says that when I essentially come and I give myself away to you, I know that we both will be mutually encouraged by our faith. I will begin to grow by dying to my own self. By coming and serving the church, I know that God will strengthen and encourage me. My faith will grow. It's a really powerful principle because it's only death to self that we grow and mature in Christ. Meaning you're not going to grow mature in Christ as long as you are just about you. 
as long as you continue to force and try and force your ways, your ideas, your desires, your needs, your wants, yours, me, 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 me. It's only through our death to ourselves that God begins to grow our heart. If you think I'm crazy, then check your prayers. Check the way that you talk to the Lord. It's everything driven with God. What are you doing in me, offering me? Where are you leading me? What job do you have for me? Everything's in me. Instead of saying, God, where are you and how can I join you? God, what are you doing? God, what is your deep desire here? What is the principle at play? How do I love and serve people? Like, how do I get rid of myself in this mix? Do you want to see your marriage flourish? Take the me out of it. Instead of he not making me happy or she's not serving my needs, you remove the me and you begin to die to yourself and you realize that in those moments of death to self, God begins to grow your heart. Death to self leads to true abundant life and not just eternal life. That is the great promise of the believer, but eternal life does not, I say this all the time, does not begin when we die. Eternal life actually begins today. It begins right now, which means you can have the joyful, abundant, real life that God has called you to in this moment. You don't have to wait until you die to experience God's glory. Yes, there is something that waits for us that is beyond comprehension, but God's promise is that he will give us abundant life here. Jesus says it in John 10, 10, I've come that you might have life and life to the full. That life only comes when we begin to die to our old self. Death to self leads to life. And Paul realizes that. He knows that. He knows that if he comes and he lays his life down for the church, that there's going to be this mutual edification in which he grows in his faith. It's not that he is coming to do that just to get that, but he just knows it's going to happen. When I come and just give, God is going to strengthen me because I'm going to see you grow. There's something incredibly joyful about seeing someone else grow in Christ that it fills our heart, and Paul knows that. So we have Paul with his desire where he wants to come and serve the church, just lay his life down. We also see that Paul understands and knows that death to self leads to life. Let's look at verse 13. Verse 13, Paul says this. <clears throat> he says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I planned many times to come to you, but I've been prevented from doing so until now in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I have had a harvest among other Gentiles. Paul knows that death to self brings life, right? But Paul also longs to see people saved. So what Paul's talking about there when he talks about harvest is he's talking about the salvation of those who put their faith in Jesus Christ. He basically is trying to explain to them this. He's saying, look, I've tried to come to you. I promise you. I even took an oath that I've been praying for you. I've tried to come to you many times, but I have been, I've been unable to. God has basically prevented me. Last week we talked a lot about the providence of God. That means that God is always at work. We trust that God may not always work things out how we want them to. We believe God's always in working for his glory and his purposes. And God providentially has kept Paul from going to Rome up until this point. So Paul's tried to go, multiple times he's tried to go, he's even told them he's tried to go, but God has kept them from doing that. And Paul says this, the reason I want to go is to bring the spiritual gift to you and because I want to see a harvest like I've seen among other Gentile groups that I've been with. The harvest that Paul is talking about is he wants to see people save faith in Jesus Christ. When we talk about a biblical harvest, that's what we're talking about. 
that the gospel, right, brings life like, like seed and water on a field grows a crop and a great harvester comes through and harvests that crop that we are people that have been brought to life through faith in Jesus Christ. And God's great harvest are those claiming those that are his and taking them home. Paul wants and longs to see people saved. He says, the reason that I've been wanting to come to you for so long is to give you the spiritual gift and to see people come to know Jesus. And there's almost this deep sort of urgency in Paul's kind of longing, right? Like he's like, I've been trying, I've been trying, I've been trying, I've been trying. God has just prevented me from being there. So I'm praying that he will open the door. That's how he ended last week. Right? I am praying that God will open the door. I've been trying to come. God hasn't allowed me to, but I'm not stopping. I'm continuing to pray. I will get there because I want to see people saved. Everywhere I've gone to preach the gospel of Gentiles, I want to see people saved. It's a powerful thought, right? This sort of urgency that comes with the gospel. It's got me convicted, though, a lot, because I don't think the church, us, the church, the big C, has a lot of gospel urgency. I don't think we have a lot of urgency when we think about the world around us. Here's the reality, that we are fully dead in our sin, right, as I mentioned. We're not dying, we're not sick, we are fully dead. And yet, the, as believers, we hold the key to eternal life. That the key to eternal life is a relationship with Jesus Christ, by in which we die to ourselves, put our faith in Christ, and he saves us and redeems us, not just from this hellish earth, right, and all the more immorality that exists here, but for the promise of eternal life to come. We hold those keys, and those keys is the person of Jesus Christ. And yet there's no sense of urgency in us for the world around us. In fact, it'll take us one, two, three, four, five years to even have a somewhat spiritual conversation with someone that we know that's not about football or our kids or donuts or whatever. We have people around us who are dying without the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we don't seem to care. We're more worried about kind of the embarrassment or the uncomfortable nature that might come with trying to broach a subject that's hard to broach like religion or the gospel or whatever. And so we'll just let it be. There's no urgency. But the reality is that the gospel is life and death. And it is relevant and is real. And there are people all around us every day that are dying and dead, walking fully around dead without the gospel. And we are inconvenienced by the conversation with them. So we don't have it. Paul seems to have this urgency in his voice, right? Like, I've been trying to get there. I want to get there. Why? Because I want to see people come to know Christ. I want to see the harvest. When's the last time you really thought about the harvest around us? When's the last time you hungered to see Oklahoma City come to know Christ? Your neighborhood, your neighbors, maybe even a family member. Our family members sometimes are the hardest people in the world to even share the gospel with. We could share a gospel with a stranger, but when it comes to our brother who we love, we can't muster up enough courage to talk to him about Jesus because we don't want to make it uncomfortable at Thanksgiving. He's dying without Christ. There's no urgency. Somehow the church has got to rekindle its gospel urgency. Like, look, it's not this thing where if we don't, right? That's kind of the beauty about believing in a God that is totally sovereign. It's not this thing like if we don't, it won't ever happen. Like God is fully sovereign and fully moving, but he wants to use the church. 
This is the incredible nature of what God does. He wants to use the church, and he wants us to long to see people saved. He wants us to be eager about it. He wants us to hunger for it. He wants us to pray for the people around us. He wants us to ask God to prepare a way to go there. Lord, I want to see my neighbor come to know Christ. And like Paul began to pray, I'm going to begin to work away. I'm going to begin to pray that God opens away. I'm going to keep trying. I'm going to invite them over. I'm going to find time. I'm going to broach the subject. I'm going to have conversations. If God keeps me from doing it, then that's okay. I'll just wait till he's ready. But God, I'm going to try because I love them and I want to see them come to know Christ. Like, this is the hunger that has to be in the soul of the believer. And if it's not, we have to ask ourselves why. And I think it's because this, most of us don't fully understand our own real condition. Most of us don't truly understand what it means to be saved. Most Western believers, and I say this, especially in Oklahoma, the Bible Belt area that we are, we've been, we have grown up with the gospel at our feet. All right? Everybody we know has gone in or out of church. I mean, there's... This was about eight years ago, so I don't know what it is now. But eight years ago, there were 1,667 churches in the metro. In our city, 1,600. Brandon and I went to an event, oh, I guess it was years ago, right? Kind of 2015 or 16. It was a gathering of local pastors. We were meeting down at a church downtown, and we met a guy who was planning a church, and they had moved into Will Rogers Theater. We had been back in 2010 and 2011, right? We met him, and he's like, hey, man, we're, we're, we have a church in Yukon, but we're planning a church on Western, right? He didn't know who we were or what we did. And uh, so we're planning a church on Western. And he goes, we're so excited. He goes, we're moving into the urban core. I was like, oh, that's great, man. He goes, we're going where there are no churches. And I said, who? <laughs> really? He goes, yeah, no churches. He goes, we're moving right into the heart of the city. And I was like, okay, well, one, two, three, four, five, six. There's 12 within a half-mile radius of where you are. I didn't say that, but in my head I'm going, yeah, you can't swing a cat without hitting a church. right? Like, they're everywhere. This city is full of them, right? Like, most of us have grown up with the gospel. It's a nice notion, but there's 1,667 of them in our metro. Like, they're everywhere. Literally, if you stand at Will Rogers, you can count 12 churches in less than a half-mile radius. Now, what I'm saying is that the reason I say that is because most of us have been so grown, have grown up so deeply with sort of the gospel or with church as part of our connectivity that we really don't even understand what it means to be saved. We're comfortable and familiar with the idea of church and the idea of the gospel and the idea of, and we are not convicted by our own sin. A lot of us walked an aisle when we were seven, right? We came to faith early. We grew up in a youth group and we did all these kind of things. And while we know the gospel to be true, we don't have any real sense of the fact that we have been fully redeemed from death. Because if we truly understood the nature of who we were, then there would be nothing that could stop us from telling every person in the world about the good news of Jesus Christ. So my only, my only kind of fallback is that we don't, must not know what it truly means to be saved. We must be taking all this for granted. And that's a problem because we are called to be the instruments of the gospel to go to the world. It was Paul's deepest desire to see people saved. Like, this church should be driven by its desire to see people saved. Encounter the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Paul knows this, this kind of heartbeat. He wants to serve the church, right? Paul knows that the death to self leads to life, and Paul has this deep desire to see people saved. But Paul's calling is really kind of what this part of the letter rolls back into. And Paul has this kind of real um, Joyful obedience to his own calling. Listen to what he says there at the end. Last two verses and we'll wrap this up. He says this. <clears throat> he says, I am obligated. 
both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and to the foolish, that this is why I'm so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. I'm obligated to the Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That's why I'm eager to preach the gospel, right, to you who are in Rome. So Paul has this unique calling. You remember Paul's calling, Acts chapter 9? Paul, we talked about this, I think, in week one. Paul was given a letter by the high priest, which he wanted, charged to go out and round up all these Christians and kill them or at least stand over their trials and watch them become executed or imprisoned for life. Like, Paul hated Christians. It was part of his story, right? He was, uh, he was on a mission to destroy them all. He's headed to Damascus, right? This great light shines all around him and tells King Agrippa that it was brighter than like a thousand suns kind of deal. Like it was bright, knocks him to the ground. Jesus speaks to Paul out of this light. He says, Paul, who is this? what are you doing? You know, and Paul says, who are you, Lord? He says, it's me, Jesus, whom you're persecuting. He said, get up and you're going to go down the road and you're going to wait for me to show up. And so Paul does. He gets up. He's blinded, guided by the hand of his, his people that he's with. He goes down into the city and he waits for three days. And God shows up to this guy named Ananias. Uh, Ananias, who we don't really know much else about in Scripture. He's just a brother there, just a believer. God shows up to him in a vision. He says, Ananias, I've got a job for you. And that job is you're going to go lay hands on Paul, right? And you're going to tell him something very specific. And Ananias says to God in his dream, he says, I don't think you know who this guy is. This is Paul. He's killing people. And Jesus basically says in this vision, yeah, I know who he is. And you're going to go And you're going to put your hands on him, and you're going to tell him this. Brother Saul, God is calling you, right, to take the gospel to the Gentiles and to their kings. And that's exactly what Ananias does. He goes and he lays his hands on on Paul. Scales fall from his eyes, and he says, Brother, God is calling you to take the gospel of the Gentiles and to their kings. This becomes essentially Paul's call. Paul reiterates that call here by simply saying, I have been obligated to take the gospel both to the Greeks and the non-Greeks. The actual word there for non-Greeks is the word barbaros, which means uh, barbarians. But it's not like land pirates, you know, where it's more like anyone that doesn't speak Greek, any uncultured, kind of uncouth person. It's any non-Greek speaker, which would include the Romans, right? So basically Paul says, my job is to take the gospel to both the educated and the uneducated, the wise and the foolish, the classy and the non-classy. It's my obligation, and I'm eager to do it. And it's an interesting word, obligation, right? Because we hear the word obligation, we don't think that sounds like something fun. When you're obligated to do something, it carries this connotation of burden, right? Like, I've got to do this thing. I've got this obligation at work. If I can't get out, you know, it's like, you know, I've got to do this, and there's not a lot of joy in there. But For the Christian, there's a different thing that happens with obligation, and it's interesting. Because we are still obligated to do things, but it's not an obligation that carries a burden. It's an obligation that actually carries with it a willingness and a joy because of where we've been and who we are. Meaning simply this. Paul, for example, goes from wanting to kill Christians to being called to make them. His deepest desire of his own selfish way was to go and persecute them, capture them, arrest them, and kill them. God transforms that in him. And now Paul's obligation and calling is to go and save them, and he's eager to do it. Because God has resurrected and changed Paul's own heart. So Paul's heart's changed, and it's changed how he sees the calling. It's no longer something I have to do, but it's something I want to do. Obligation is still part of the Christian life. It just is. Right, But it 
coupled with a change of heart, changes the mentality and takes the burden away. I heard a preacher one time say this, hey, if you're saved, then you no longer have to do anything. You just want to do things. And I thought, that's garbage. Like, as a Christian, there's still a lot of things you have to do, right? Like, you have to love your wife. I hope you want to, but you're also called to. Like, you have to love your children. You may not hope you want to, but you still have to, right? You are still called to not murder, right? You have to, and I hope you don't want to, but just because you don't want to do something doesn't remove the obligation from it. There are a lot of things we're obligated to do. But here's the thing. When you've been set free and redeemed by Christ, it changes our hearts so the obligation no longer carries the burden. Like, it's not a burden for me to love my wife. Like, if I truly understand what God has done in me and resurrected in me and calls me to mutual submission and how I'm called to lay my life down for her, then it is a privilege. It's not always easy. But the obligation doesn't carry the weight of being like, oh, God, the ball and chain. No, man. If you do that, your heart's broken. The obligation carries with it lightness. Jesus tells it, it says it to, tells us in, in uh, Matthew 11. He says, right, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. The obligation is there. But the burden becomes easy. And that's why Paul says, I'm eager to come and preach to you. I'm excited about it. Look, it wasn't easy. Paul's calling was hard, right? If you read anything about Paul's life, it was hard. I mean, near death, beaten, flogged, shipwrecked, snake bites, imprisoned, time and time again, ridiculed, outcast. But Paul carried this eagerness to do it all. The burden had been removed. It didn't make it easier. But he was obligated. And he told him that. He said, it's my calling. I am obligated, meaning I have to, by my calling, take the gospel to the world, to everyone. And he goes, and I'm eager to do it. So he doesn't shift the responsibility. He says, God has given me this. He's called me to it, but I'm joyfully obedient in doing it. And I'm eager to come to you. So he basically says, it's not coming out of my own desire because I'm going to get something from it because I've got some great blessing that you're going to give me. No, I'm coming because I want to serve the church and I know that death to self will bring true life and I want to see people saved and God has called me and I'm obligated, but I'm joyfully obedient to do it and I'm coming because I want you to know Jesus. All that Paul lays out in this incredible picture. And those questions that we ask ourselves, like how do we as a church see our calling, right? Like, is this thing really about you? Do we have an urgency to see the people saved? Are we joyfully obedient in our calling? And as a believer, we're called to a lot of things. We're called to die to ourselves. We're called to give generously. We're called to fight for and love the marginalized and the oppressed. We're called to serve other people above ourselves. We're called to love our husbands and our wives and our children. We're called to give our lives away. And it's not a burden that carries weight. It's called to be a joyful calling and obligation. Obligation and calling go hand in hand for the believer. Yeah, there are things we have to do. Hopefully the things we want to do, but even if they're not at times, we still can be joyful in how we do them because the burden is gone. As followers of Christ, this becomes a real picture of the church. What if we could adopt these things that Paul's saying and infuse them to our existence, right? 
Let them become part of who we are. It would change, it would change the world. Jesus does this exact thing when he lays down his own life, right? We celebrate communion every month, and we celebrate it because Christ calls us to and because it's an important part of what we do together. But Jesus is the example of what death to self looks like. Like Jesus ultimately laid down his life perfectly and flawlessly for the church, for creation. He's referring to himself in that passage in John 12 where he says, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it won't produce any seeds. But if it dies, it produces all these seeds. Jesus' death is life-producing. Jesus had to die so that we might have full, true, abundant life because he died for our sin. His death most literally brings life. It's the example that Christ gave the church that we're called to die to ourselves so that we might have full life, abundant life here on earth, and that we might be excited about sharing the gospel so that others might experience that same saving grace that gives life. This table is that picture. It's not something we do out of habit. It's not something we do just because we have to. It's actually a great privilege that we have as the church to to celebrate this and be a part of this meal together. It's a gift that Christ gave the entire church. It's not a denominational. It's actually a, a gift that he gave all those who profess faith in Jesus Christ. But on the night that he was betrayed, on the night that all of his people would run and flee, on the night that he would be handed over, on the night that he would stand sham of a trial, all those things. After they had had the meal, Jesus reclined with his disciples at the table, and looking at all of them, he gave them this incredible gift. He gave thanks, and he took a loaf of bread, and he said, This bread is my body, and it is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, after he took bread, he took the cup, and he said, This cup is my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. This is the new covenant poured out for you. As long as you take of this bread and this cup, you're proclaiming the death of Christ until he comes again. This is the great promise for the Christian church, that God gave us the example of death to self to the person of Jesus Christ, that if we put our faith and trust in him, not only do we have the promise of eternal life to come, but we have true, real, abundant life today. The Apostle Paul tells us to take this table seriously, he tells us to actually examine our heart, not take it lightly. If there's things that are outstanding, sin, things we haven't confessed, things we need to let go of, he says to examine our heart and purge those things. And then approach this table in the freedom that comes from Christ. I'm going to invite our elders to come forward as we pray. But this morning we're going to take uh, communion by means of intinction, which is a fancy way of saying take a piece of bread and dip it in the cup. We have gluten-free Jesus down here on the front station, um, but there'll be one in the front and the back. And ask you to remain standing after you've taken communion, and we will close our time in worship together. But for elders to come forward, I'll pray for us this morning. Lord, what a privilege it is to gather in this place. What a privilege it is to be a part of what you are doing. What a privilege it is, Lord, to celebrate this meal together. To understand that we're called to serve each other, to love each other, to care deeply for um, what you're doing in this place. Lord, we're called to lay down our lives for one another, to give our hearts away. We're called to care deeply about the spiritual lives of other people. We want to see people saved, to come to know saving grace in Jesus Christ. Lord, we want to see the world know you. Lord, let us be hungry for these things. But let us be hungry for them in a way that understands our own death and failures and need for salvation. That we can do nothing without you. That this meal is a celebration of what you've done for us and what we're called to share with the world. Lord, we love you and we thank you for Jesus.
Amen. I invite you to come forward as you feel led, and then let's remain standing and close our time in worship.
incredible privilege of being able to gather as a community to celebrate this truth, the singular truth that Jesus has died for us, that he gave his life so that we might have full, true, and real abundant life. Lord, we ask that as we celebrate this, it might stir our hearts to want to serve one another, to want to lay down our own lives, to want to die to ourselves so that we might be found fully alive in you, that we might mutually grow in our faith, that we might experience the goodness that you have for us, and that, Lord, we have been made fully alive in Christ. So as we close our time in worship and we celebrate this, we celebrate these truths, these truths that are ours in Christ, fully given to us, that you are king, that you are God, and that you redeem. So Lord, hear our cries. We close our time in worship. Let us celebrate you, the true and only giver of life. Amen.
give the Lord a hand this morning. God, you are so good to us, right? So the challenge is to walk out of here empowered by the Holy Spirit, to begin to believe and live these truths out. That God has called us to love and serve the church, to think differently about our own relationship here and what it means to truly give our lives away. That death to self leads to life. That we should have a hunger to see people saved and find joyful obedience to our calling as followers of Christ. Take those truths, make them part of your heart, and go in peace.